Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to Talking Tudors episode 94. I'm your host Natalie Gruniger and it's wonderful to have your company. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. Your support is very much appreciated. If you love the podcast and eagerly await every new episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. It's easy to do. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. December's prize is Lucy Churchill's astonishing reconstruction of Anne Boleyn's The Most Happy Portrait Medal. In addition to receiving the plaque, the lucky winner will also receive two portrait medal magnets. A huge thank you to Lucy for sponsoring this incredible prize. If you've been considering supporting the work I do, then this is really the perfect time to join. Now, on to today's episode. I'm so excited that joining me on the show to talk about everyday life in Tudor England is Ruth Goodman. Ruth is a social historian and regular TV broadcaster and presenter. She's presented a number of hugely successful series for the BBC, including Victorian Farm, Tudor Monastery Farm, Coast and Inside the Factory. As well as the books accompanying her many series, she's written the critically acclaimed How to Be a Victorian, How to Be a Tudor and How to Behave Badly in Renaissance Britain. My conversation with Ruth straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. Welcome to Talking Tudors. Ruth, how are you? Hello. Very well, thank you. Thanks for letting me come and talk to you. 
Yes, it's such a great honor. Thank you. Now, while I imagine that a lot of people that are interested in the tutors that might be listening today have heard about your excellent books and your documentaries, I think it would be so great if we could just start by you introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background and maybe what inspired your love of history and the tutors. Oh dear, that's a difficult question. Right, well, I'm Ruth Goodman and um, I call myself a social historian these days. I'm not formally trained at all. I'm self-taught. It came to me through a hobby, the whole interest in Tudors. In fact, initially it was my husband's hobby. He was a reenactor, you know, one of those people who dresses up and runs around fighting battles. Now, I've never been interested in the battles. I slightly worry that it's a bit of a glorification of war. But the people were interesting and very nice and welcoming. Very quickly, we discovered something called living history. And I was hooked immediately. I mean, absolutely immediately. It was just fascinating. So I wanted to know about the, the real nitty gritty of ordinary people's lives. Um, the, the really simple stuff like, you know, going to the loo and brushing your teeth yeah. and what you have for dinner. And what I immediately discovered was that almost nobody knew. I mean, certainly the people we were reenacting had very sketchy ideas. So off I went to the library. And what I discovered in the library was nobody there seemed to know either. Uh, you know, the, the bookshelves were full of books about war. They were full of books about queens. They were full of books about kings. What they didn't have was anything about reality, uh, you know, as lived by most of us. And, and I found that quite shocking. And I sort of had to teach myself how to research, really, to try and find out. And, you know, some books have little snippets in, but it's not easy. And so I sort of almost gave up on, on the work of historians and had to go right back to scratch and start learning how to understand documents, how to read. Many of these documents are written in weird handwriting that isn't the same as one. Different letter shapes. Um, <laughs> so you have to sort of teach yourself to read secretary hand. You have to learn how to get to grips with record offices and the sorts of collections are there and start going back to you know, original manuscripts and start piecing it together yourself. And I just found it the most exciting puzzle. It's like being a detective, only of course nobody's actually you know lying on the body on the floor covered in blood um thankfully um, <laughs> you know it's intellectually a challenge it's also quite emotionally a challenge and and a challenge too about modern life because one of the things you have to try and do if you're going to take research and history seriously is to unlearn almost everything you know about modern life and all the assumptions you didn't even know they were assumptions you've taken them so much for granted but you know that's it you've got to sort of like look through a microscope at yourself and the way you think and unpick that as the same time as you're busy looking through a magnifying glass (laughs) and trying to unpick another society another culture it's like anthropology and detective work all at once fantastic and how can any of you resist such a challenge? <laughs> Absolutely. I can't resist it, Ruth. That's for sure. I certainly can't resist it. And I must say, I find it so refreshing that you're not formally trained as a historian. Because I think that's going to inspire a lot of people listening that think there's only one avenue to this sort of work. And of course, there's, yeah. different, there's different ways, you know, and that's, I, yeah, that's really refreshing. Now, let's just briefly talk about your books. Now, you've got lots, but let's focus on how to be a Tudor, which is fantastic, I love, and how to behave badly in Elizabethan England. So what can readers expect to learn from these books? I think it pretty much says what it, you know, on the tin, what's involved. (laughs) So how to be a Tudor really is about going through the processes of living, um, sort of moving through a day and, uh, you know, all the sorts of little, little bits and bobs that you would need to know in order to survive within that context. 
So it is things like how to go to the loo and brush your teeth and what you have for breakfast. It's a mixture of the practical and the ideas that come with that. Because, you know, we don't live in bubbles. We don't only do what is natural and practical. We all of us live within a culture. So it's an exploration of both. The sort of understanding and ideas and the practices that grow out of that hand in hand, moving through the day. Now, behaving badly is rather different because, as you can imagine, it's about behaving badly. (laughs) It's about... (laughs) Rude gestures, rude words, uh, mannerisms, bad manners. It's about how to disgust and annoy and (laughs) irritate all your neighbours. It's all about the little rules of life. Not the big legal rules, you know, not the formal stuff, but the sort of informal codes of behaviour that uh, drove life, that how you judged people, how you judged yourself. I mean, we all do it now. And of course, there's a history to that. So it's a sort of way of, another way of exploring culture, but from rather a sneaky angle, really. I mean, again, it's sort of, it's appealing, isn't it? Knowing rude words and rude gestures. Particularly (laughs) very satisfying, I find, when it turns out that some of the rudest gestures are no longer known. So you can get away with them in modern society and nobody knows just how foul you're being. (laughs) Unless it's a Tudor fan or an Elizabethan fan. Unless it's a Tudor fan, in which case they'll be giving you a look. (laughs) Oh, I love it. They sound absolutely fantastic. Now, as you've mentioned, we hear a lot about the big battles and the extravagant lives of, you know, the Tudor nobility and the royalty. But, you know, what was life like for ordinary people? And I know we could talk for hours just about this, but can you give us a bit of a snapshot of what maybe a day in the life of an ordinary Tudor man or woman? And let's narrow it down a little bit more, maybe one living in, say, rural area, countryside. Yeah, well, almost everybody did live in a yep. rural area, so that doesn't narrow it down much no. at all. <laughs> Sorry, I should have said this, living in a city. Um, something like 95% of the population were rural. So um, the first thing one always has to say is any experience of the past, if you're a modern person, the first thing I think that would hit you would be how bloody cold it is. Mm. I mean, Britain is not a warm place. No. We have a, The number of days you have in the year when you feel too hot can be counted on one hand. <laughs> And you probably don't feel too hot for all of the day, even. You know, most of the time it's pretty cool and pretty wet and damp. And there wasn't much in the way of heating. So I think, you know, for a modern person, that's the first thing that would hit you. Just how ruddy cold it is. You need to remember that only the very most wealthy had glass in their windows. Everybody else just had an open hole in the wall with shutters that you could put across at night. So obviously indoor and outdoor temperatures can be pretty much the same. Heating was via um, a wood fire or a peat fire if you lived in a district that was short on wood supply. Uh, Unless you lived in London, a bit different in London. That's a whole different book. That's all about coal. Um, (laughs) But you, for most people in a rural area, it might still have been, for most of the Tudor era, it will have been a central fire in the middle of the room, a floor, you know, just on on the floor in the middle of the room. Now that is very efficient because whatever heat is produced is now in that whole space but so is all the smoke so what you have to do is live very close to the floor so that's another thing i think you would notice most of the furniture we see in recreations um whether they be going around historic house or film or television or are very much set in grand houses and they're often furnished towards the end of the era not not the middle or the beginning of the era there's way too much furniture Mm. way 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 too much furniture because our modern ideas we look see a space we assume it must be full of furniture Mm. so when we recreate spaces we automatically without really giving it a great deal of thought do the same the evidence shows that there was very little that most people actually lived on the floor because that way you're underneath the level of the smoke 
you're not choking. If you sit up on a tall chair, there's a chance that your head might be at the smoke layer and then your eyes are going to run and you're going to cough and you, you're going to make yourself ill. Whereas if you're sat down on the floor or squatted on a low stool, you're down in the clean air, you can breathe freely, your eyes are fine. It's all much more comfortable. So people tended to have a layer of rushes on the floor and sit and indeed sleep directly on the floor. You know, it's, it's like camping in a way. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, definitely. Down, down, down. You know, you, you want to be right. You don't actually want to be on bare earth because that's damp and cold. But if you've got a layer of rushes about, say, deep, yay deep, well, they're insulative. So you're not going to feel the cold. You're not going to feel the damp. You're going to be warm and dry on this top, slightly squashy layer that's really quite comfy to sit and to lie on. Um, and you're out of the smoke. So imagine a world in which it's pretty cold, <laughs> yeah. but it's also very low, very low and very uncluttered. So that's a sort of immediate sort of snapshot. Other than that, hard work, huge yeah. amount of heavy physical labor and very basic food. It's not horrible, but there's not an enormous amount of variety and getting enough is, is the key for people. Um, sometimes people go, oh, Medellin food, that's all horrid. And that's just not true. I mean, most of the information we have about the food that people were eating is recipe books, which were aimed, of course, at the rich. They're people with resources. They're people with servants to fiddle about and do things. They're people who could afford to go to the grocers and buy the extortionately expensive spices. Most people weren't in that situation. Most people have got next to no time to do the cooking because they've got so much else to do. They've got very few ingredients available to them. But of course, they've also, but they have got to mitigate that is a sort of, you know, a great deal of seasonality, what comes in and what goes out. That provides the variety through the year. At any one day, you've probably got next to no choice as to what you're going to eat. But what you eat this week is not going to be what you eat next week. So there is variety over the year. And what it's mostly going to be is very grain-based. So obviously bread, loads of bread. But also a thing called frumenty. Now, this might have been more common even than bread um, because it's cheaper. If you take whole grains... If you've got to then make bread, you've got to have them milled, which means you've got to go to the miller and pay the miller to mill your flour. But if you can make a dish out of the whole grains, you've saved yourself some money there. You've also made sure you're eating all of it and none of it's gone to waste, which obviously the milling process a little bit gets lost. Even if you have the whole meal back rather than sifted white flour, you're still going to have less coming back than you sent to the mill. Whereas if you make a sort of risotto-y, paella-y thing out of the whole grains, you've got every darn bit of goodness going. And that is probably what most people ate most of the time. It's gone out of fashion. Britain no longer eats that sort of thing. We gave up when we switched over to coal uh, as, as our main fuel. But if you think of something sort of like paella or risotto that you can add other vegetables into when you've got them, or if you had a little bit of butter, you could stir that in, or if you have a bit of cheese, you can melt it over, or if you've got a handful of shellfish, they can go in the pot and make something different. You know, a handful of fruit can make a sweet one, a little bit of cream can make a huge, you know, you don't need very much to make it varied and different, but the basis is, is a sort of boiled, swelled grain. That's what you lived on. I'm going to stop there because otherwise I'll just go on forever. Oh, I love it. I'm fascinated. I'm just, <laughs> that's fantastic. Thank you. And I really enjoyed hearing about, yeah, the living low. I have to say, I've been studying this period for a long time. I've never thought about that. I've actually never thought oh. about that. So that's a really a different perspective, it, I suppose. It is a different perspective. Mm. Chimneys really transformed life. And chimneys mm. only come in at the very end of the Tudor period. And, and even then only for, you know, the top half of the population. So, yeah. 
it's a, so it's a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. And as you said, the nitty gritty, that's what we all love. We want to know everything about how they did all the little things in life. And I, what I find is that questions about hygiene and, you know, personal hygiene <laughs> and personal grooming is what everyone wants to know. And yeah. they come up in discussions all the time. And there's one that I hear, or, well, I see or I read or I hear all the time. And that's about shaving. Did women remove any body hair during the Oh, period? God, no. <laughs> you must be nuts. The only people who didn't have hair were those who were riddled with syphilis. You know, body hair removes, it mm. is removed by those um, uh, venereal diseases. And right. uh, having a bald, being bald down under was the sign of being infected. So you get euphemisms like she has no thatch to her house. Ah, uh, I've never heard that He's one. He's riddled go. with venereal disease. Wow. So obviously the last thing you do would be to, remind you to, yeah. to shave any body Makes hair. Sense. It would just, you know, why would you mark yourself out as dirty and diseased? Wow. <laughs> and immoral, so you know, immoral as well. Yeah. No, no, no. No shaving of any no. form of body hair. Okay. So only maybe a bit of plucking of the... The, the hairline, is that right later on? Hairline, that's, yeah, that's it. That's the Excellent. Well, we've, we've dealt with that one. Excellent. Now, <laughs> another one, of course, has to do with toileting practices, which we're all obsessed with. Um, so what did they use instead of toilet paper? Well, this is really hard to pin down. Lots of people go on about moss and leaves, but I mean, if you've ever <laughs> thought about it practically, it's clearly bollocks. I mean, yeah. how much moss and leaves do you need? <laughs> I know the leaves, especially. I mean, what were you going to do? How whole fields turned over to moss production <laughs> instead of food? I think not. And what are you going to do in January when all the leaves have gone? You know, I mean, <laughs> presumably at some times a year, if it was handy, some people might have used those sorts of materials. You know, why not? They're disposable. They, you know, they're fine. They're very clean. That it's fine. Most of the time, not. And, and it is quite hard to be certain. But what I would think is most likely is that people had something a bit like a flannel, a cloth, and they washed themselves. Um, and then you wash the cloth out afterwards. I mean, that's, after all, how we deal with it for babies. Yes. Yeah. We wipe, you know, we wrap them up in cloth mm. and then we launder the cloth. It's also probably how women dealt with menstruation. Mm. You use a cloth to staunch the flow in one way or another. And yep. then you wash the cloth. Laundry was seen as the pathway to cleanliness. And, you know, there was a lot of laundry going on. So it would make sense. And it wouldn't be that hard to manage. If you think of a sort of traditional privy at the bottom of the garden, if you had a cloth, perhaps you had a nail, uh, you know, and everybody had their own cloth, I don't know, yeah. and a bucket of water. I mean, you could manage it quite cleanly, couldn't you? Yeah, you could. Well, I'm glad that I guess the leaves was bothering me. I was just going to understand how many leaves <laughs> do I collect? How many, exactly. How many leaves do you need? do with the leaves? I don't know. So thank you, Ruth. I feel much better now that I can use my cloth. Um, and so you, I was going to ask you about menstruation because that is another one that always comes up. People are always interested oh. to know what happened? Yeah. How did they deal with it? How did they cope? So do you want to add anything else about that? Yeah, I mean, the most important thing is to notice the silence. of. When, I mean, I really noticed it when I was doing the behaving badly. You can find scurrilous, rude information about almost every other bodily sort of function. You know, there's yeah. plenty of funny stories about piss, vomit, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. snot. <laughs> yeah. Tudor humour is pretty crude um, <laughs> and uh, you know it's all there people are, are, are making jokes out of all everything except menstruation it is really noticeable by its absence it is so dirty 
You can't talk about it, even though you can talk about shit, piss and vomit. You can't talk about menstruation. And that, of course, therefore pervades the whole of the, of the historical record. If, if it's too dirty to talk about, it's not talked about. So how do we know? It's really, really hard to piece together. And people have come up with all sorts of ideas. I've heard some very intelligent uh, historians suggest that women just did nothing and they just let yes, it flow. I have read that, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, yes, if your flow is light, and you know you might there might have been situations where that happened but I find it hard to be convinced that that's the whole society I mean nowadays there are plenty of women in modern world who are underfed overworked uh, having babies every five minutes and they still have regular menstrual flow some of them very heavy so you know obviously the human condition is is very varied the best information really is the occasional reference to women's rags doesn't give any form women's rags that's it and then and it's a very rare reference even at that so something to do with cloth and then later practice comes in too so by the time you get into the 19th century there are survivors and of course much more information but in particular are physical survivors and most commonly in the victorian period it's cloth made into some sort of bag um, which you could stuff with your moss if you had any <laughs> or straw or whatever else you might want or just with other rag or a folded rag right. um, that could be worn on a belt to, you know, like a sanitary pad. Yeah. But there's another option as well, which I think is suggested perhaps by some of the medical uses for linen to staunch blood. And that was to make, to take a little strip of linen, very fine, usually it was always recommended that we should be old and worn linen, which is more absorbent. You take a long strip, you don't hem it, you just have a cut strip and you roll it into a cylinder with one end lift. And these little cylinder bandages, this packed linen, were used for all sorts of blood staunching. Well, to be honest, if you go to the dentist, sometimes they still use yes. a little little roll of yes, compressed cotton do. wool, don't they, in your yeah, mouth absolutely. as a, a staunch. Yeah. Um, so the idea that that, you know, which is <laughs> clearly a tampon. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. might have been pressed into use like that. seems likely. I have no proof of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I can only say it seems likely. And I can also only say that it works. I've used it myself as an experiment. And actually, it's very clean and very easy to use. Much more efficient, you know, at doing the job than the pads. Yeah. Um, wow. And easier to wear, too, in a world that didn't wear knickers. Yes. That's, oh, who knows? Gosh. Who knows? Yeah. Um, the evidence is sketchy. So there's bits and bobs here. There's little bits that could be sort of sort of support almost any of these various theories. I my suspicion is that the practice was rather varied because it's not a hugely amount talked about. It's hard to see how uniformity would move across a society. I presume families had different ways of dealing with it and told their daughters. And <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> so right. there might yeah. have been quite a lot of variation. That's the best I can give you. It's no, good. and that's great. That's a lot of information. Thank you. And I love the fact that uh, I wanted to talk to you about some of your experiments. I know you've done <laughs> lots of experiments and you don't just, you know, write about how people lived. You actually trial how people lived, which I, I find really fascinating. So can you tell us about maybe a couple of your experiments that you've done and what you learned from, from those experiences? Oh, well, it's sort of ongoing, really. I do it all the time. I mean, not so much this year. It's been a bit weird, really. Hardly yeah, it's been a weird year. <laughs> But I mean, I've been doing it for well more than 30 years now in short periods, obviously, because one has to live a life as well. So often just a weekend, sometimes longer, a couple of weeks here, a couple of weeks there. And then obviously the television allowed me more scope in many ways. In some ways, the television sort of gets in the way 
because you have the processes of television making, which means you can't really do things for real. It all has to be repeated and you've got people standing around in your way. And, you know, it's, it's a yeah. high stress situation. It's not really real. So in many ways, the best experiments have been on our own. Um, I, I work with a, a group of friends and a reenactment society. And, you know, we go away and we, we haven't got anybody to answer to then. We can, you know, be as real as we want to be. We can make those choices ourselves. Um, and we have done sort of fortnight at a time. I mean, I think perhaps the one we always, some of us always moan about most, I think, but perhaps it was more real than any of the others. We did a fortnight at a place called St. Fagans in February. It was snowing quite a lot. It was cold. It's a very simple house. We were on the floor um, with a central hearth and uh, we were did. We were making ditches and hedges during the day, so we had actual physical work to be doing. And we tried to eat the diet. Um, no, actually, it might not have been, sli- might have been slightly later because it was Lent, so there was no meat or fish or dairy produce. It was entire. We went the full hog. <laughs> it was entirely grain um, vegetables, which, of course, there are not very many of them around at that time of year. It's always known as the hungry gap. It's the hardest time to feed yourself. It's the most monotonous diet. I find it particularly difficult to give up tea and coffee. Um, you know, it's the cold. It's the cold. There's nothing, you know, like trying to drink cold drinks when you're cold. It's not great. You know, it really brings down, you can feel it, you know, that sort of hypothermia edge. And of course, we have no false light. So we were trying very hard to do it as real as, as possible. And that had a number of interesting effects on the body. One was without artificial light and with heavy, heavy labor during the hours of daylight, we actually slept through the hours of darkness well at that time of year in britain it's absolutely pitch black by four o'clock in the afternoon and doesn't get light again until half past seven eight o'clock in the morning so that's a really long period of dark but because without the stimulation of electric light it was a weird you know like the, the lighter could have, you'd have to have your last meal in daylight you can't you can't cook and wash up in the dark so that meant your last meal had to be before four o'clock you had to get washed up and finished with it by four o'clock so then you sit around, you've got a little tiny fire, you've got no other light. And because the light level is so low, your body starts to, ooh. Within an hour and a half, we were all in bed. You know, it was ridiculous. It seemed, yeah. to, to, to modern, it just seems utterly ridiculous it's that you would amazing, be tired enough to go to bed and to sleep. And we would. And if you woke up in the night, you know, you, you sort of crawl out into the freezing cold to use a chamber pot. It's too dark to get any further at night. You can't go down the end of the garden because you can't get across everybody else sleeping on the floors in the space. It's just nuts. So you very quickly learn chamber pot etiquette, which is always have your own. Never share a chamber pot. Be sure where it is and make sure you've emptied it before you go to bed. The last thing you want to find in the dark when you burst in is... <laughs> You also need to know exactly where it is. You need to like have it against a wall or something so that you, when you're feeling for it in the dark, you want mm. it empty so that you know it's empty so you're not going to put your hand in it. <laughs> but you I don't want to knock it over and you want to be able to find it. <laughs> Very important chamber pot etiquette. Um, <laughs> but you know, you, you'd get up and you'd think, oh, well, I've actually been asleep for eight hours, but you know, it's so flipping cold and getting back into bed is the only way to be warm. And you drop off again. It was extraordinary. Yeah, I had no idea how much difference electric light stimulation makes to our biorhythms. Um, and food was interesting too, because we were eating this diet with no fat whatsoever. Those people who were used to a vegetarian diet did all right. But those who were more accustomed to a more modern diet, including you know, fantasized about food the whole time. It's all they talked about. <laughs> Within a couple of days, every conversation was about burgers or sausages or... <laughs> utterly obsessed with fatty food right yeah. they couldn't think about anything else 
Interesting. That's so interesting. And I'm just thinking the effect that we, we don't realize what screens do to us, like all that screen, yeah. you know, this computer screen phones that must really affect obviously our sleep patterns. Well, people have done research yeah. on it and it does. So yeah, I can imagine that just natural light would be so different. What yeah. an incredible experience. So much learning packed into to something like that, isn't there? Yeah, it is. I mean, you, you, the thing, of course, with it is you have to do loads of preparation before. You have to be really sure that you are creating the past, that you're not doing some sort of fantasy version. Because yeah. that's not going to tell you anything, is it? You know, if no. it's not actually recreating the, you know, we, we were lucky enough to be able to use a 1500 house that St. Fagans Museum, they, they have, they've relocated houses from all over Wales that were about to be knocked down and put them in one place. So it was a 1500 house, wow. thatched house, wattle and daub house. You know, we had real work to do, the, 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 the ditches and hedges needed doing, and we were there out there with bill hooks doing it. We'd research, done years and years of research on the clothing, on the food, on the methods and the technologies and what sort of bedding there should be. You know, it, it, you have to be really, really rigorous before you embark on those sorts of things mm-hmm. if they're going to be any use if they're going to be interesting but they are and the journey there is really interesting too um, you come away from it with more questions than answers and that that's that's exciting too because it sends you off on more research mm-hmm. you know and you start oh no I didn't know about that I need to find out about that thing that I hadn't even considered was a yes. thing worth finding out about now, um, when I mentioned that I was going to chat with you, I had so many excited people and, and people wanted to ask you some questions. So I'm, I've just selected some here to ask you. So okay. lovely, lovely Judy Bickers would like to know, what did people drink in Tudor times? Okay, well, mostly ale, um, which is a bit like beer, but without the hops. So it doesn't keep like beer. The hops are a preservative, which is sort of why they came in in the 17th century. They came in from Holland. Um, they have a bitter taste, which many people like, um, but it also has a preservative effect. So you can make a, a huge batch and it will keep for ages. And so it was a, that was a new product coming in from the continent. Ale is just malted barley and water allowed to brew, but you can flavour it. And traditionally, our ale was often flavoured. Everybody had their own slight recipe. And there's all sorts of plants that grow within Britain and indeed right across Europe, whose common names sort of like give you a clue that this was widely used as, a, as an ale flavouring. There's several things like ale cost and ale marie. And <laughs> there's, there's lots of them that were regularly used. Heather seems to have been particularly popular um, as a, as a flavouring for ale. It didn't keep very long, as I said, probably a week is about the longest you can get before it starts to sour. Quite sticky and sweet. And the alcohol level is varied. You can brew very weak, you can brew very strong, and people clearly did both. In general, people were drinking fairly weak beer because it's cheaper. So, you know, and obviously you've got to survive and you can't be drunk all the time. Yes, I know. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, you might build up tolerances and not be absolutely reeling, but nonetheless, you know, if you're dealing with chisels and saws and axes, or you can't be half cut. Strong beer was really for drinking in the evening and was really restricted to sort of adult men, not so much. I mean, yes, sometimes women did, but it was more commonly an adult male drink. No mead. People get very confused about that. No mead. Forget mead. Forget it completely. Mead is made by taking honey, you know, honey, and not very many people have bees in the first place. So, you know, that's a sort of aristocratic, monkish sort of a drink. It was never common. Even amongst those people, it was never that common. Ale was always the... the... It can be a bit confusing because some modern beers are called ale. Yes, they if, are. You know, yeah. you can get a pale ale. It has, it's not an ale, it's a beer. Yeah. <laughs> Quite like that. <laughs> so it can be a bit confusing there. But you know, if you want to 
taste what uh, Tudor ale really, you're going to have to make your own. Nobody commercially produces it anymore. You will have to do your own brewing, which is quite fun. No tea, obviously, no coffee, no hot chocolate, no hot drinks at all. No hot drinks at all. I find that very hard. I didn't think about that either, no hot drinks. I find it really, really hard. Being somebody who was brought up, as is common in Britain, on tea, um, I find it, I find that cold drinks only really difficult you know i, I presume it's just a matter of acclimatization but it causes me real difficulties yeah. not just in the lack of the tea drug but also in the, the temperature with the my warmth, body putting yeah. cold liquid into my body when i'm already fighting the cold i find very hard yeah that's really interesting and water ruth any water <laughs> well yes people were drinking water um yes. people were well aware that it wasn't as good an idea as drinking ale because of it made you, it could make you ill. Um, they weren't, they didn't know why, but everybody knew that bad water made you ill. So yeah. obviously you could drink water. If you were very convinced of the cleanness of your water supply, then you might well drink water. And some areas of the country were renowned for it. Cornwall, Cornish people were renowned for drinking water, probably because due to poverty, probably right. simply couldn't afford the ale. They couldn't afford to put some of the grain aside for ale. And of course, Cornish hillsides are mostly granite. So the water that makes through, tends to come through, comes through the rock quite mm. cleanly. Uh, well, very cleanly. They have very good springs. And um, there's a lot of rain down there. So there's plenty of <laughs> You know, it's an area where the water was probably better than many other parts of the country. So for East Anglia, where it's all marshes, I mean, the last thing you want to be doing is drinking that yeah. water. So yes, some water to do mostly with poverty. And you've touched on cleanliness and things like that, but Susan Kemp would like to know, was keeping the house and the self-clean in Tudor times important? And did they understand the link between sanitation and health? Yes, on both counts. Um, people felt that cleanliness was deeply important. People moan about other people's standards. Um, uh, you, you, you get, you know, oh God, he's so stinky. Uh, she's a slut. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, people complain about other people's hygiene standards a lot. Um, which clearly shows that they cared about it. It was in, in culturally important. And when you read other things, like if you, if you read any recipe book, every other word where I say, and take a clean so-and-so and a clean this and a clean that you know, and clean wash it. And <laughs> the word clean turns up all over the place. If you were to read sources, you'd be, you know, people often say it's the Victorians who, who sort of turn cleanliness into a sort of religion. But if you're reading Tudor sources, it's still there, you know, absolutely everywhere. Everything that is good is clean and sweet. Everything that's bad is dirty. And yeah, you can't overstress that. People really mind it. Now, did they make a link between cleanliness and sanitation? Yes, but they're doing so without any knowledge of bacteria, viruses, germs, whatever you want to call. They're doing it from observed experience. It was very clear to people that if you hung around with dirt, you got ill. And the medical ideas of the time uh, enforce that they thought that disease was moved from person to person by bad smells so you don't want to smell bad yourself mm-hmm. that marks you out as disease ridden and you're passing that to somebody else you don't want your house to smell bad that would be you know unsafe for your family you don't want you know there is a big social pressure there for cleanliness both from a safety perspective and from a socially acceptable perspective how they achieve it of course is another matter and Renee wanted me to tell you how much she loved how to be a Tudor. And she would um, love to know if there's any items of Tudor clothing that you wish were still in style. Oh, well, I love the fabric linen. Um, in all Tudor underwear was made of linen. And if you've ever been lucky enough to have linen clothes, you'll know it is such a superior fabric. Um, no. 
It's gorgeous. It beats cotton hand down. The only reason cotton took over is that cotton is easier to process with machines. So when mechanization comes in, it's just much easier to swap over to cotton. Mm. Linen is lovely. It's beautiful. Oh, it's so yeah. <laughs> and it's expensive now, isn't it? That's the problem. And very expensive yeah. because it's difficult to, to process with machines. That mm. that's right. that is all is and always has been the issue. Clothing wise, I actually rather like being veiled. Yeah. Um, it's really quite nice not having to have hair on show. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, stop having to fiddle and fuss with it. You know, shove a cloth on your head. <laughs> Done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That makes mornings easier, that's for sure. <laughs> it makes mornings easier. It's, it's quite nice to be wearing, you know, it's, it's quite protective in many ways. Yeah. You yeah. know, it shades you from the sun in a world that had no sun cream. Of course. Um, it, it's... It, it provides a bit of protection against wind whistling in your ears and giving you air. I mean, I don't know, but I, if it's windy, I get, I end up clenching my jaw. I, I get very, very yeah. sore. I get terrible headaches when it's windy. And again, the cloth sort of cuts that out. <laughs> yeah. no, I find it very comfortable to wear, very easy to wear. I, I'm with the Muslim ladies there. The veil yeah. is surprisingly liberating. Fantastic. Thank you. Trisha would like to know about footwear. We don't often hear about footwear. What materials were they made from? And especially if you're working outdoors, you're doing all this hard labor, as you've mentioned, what do you have on your feet? Well, they're leather shoes. And um, the Tudor era is, is a sort of an interesting one in that at the very, very beginning, when Henry VII first comes to the throne, basically shoes are um, two pieces of leather that are sewn together and then turned inside out so that the stitching is hidden and therefore a bit more protected. And that's called a turn shoe. And it's, of course, you've got to have two pieces of leather that are soft enough to to do that. So they don't last very long. You know, you get through a lot of shoes. They're easy to make. Manufacturing is quite simple, but they're they're, they're short-lived things. About 1520-ish, certainly by 1540, pretty much everybody's gone over to a new type of shoe. When the Mary Rose sank in um, 1545, obviously a lot of the shoes went into the mud and leather preserves very well in the mud. So we have a large number of shoes from, from that era. And they're all made in the new method. So obviously it's completely taken over from the old method. And they're called welted shoes. Now, if you go and buy a posh leather shoe today, that method is still in use. So it was invented in the Tudor. And what it is, is in, you have your normal upper, and then you have the piece you sew it to, but you only do sew it to a strip. You just have a little strip of leather, which you can then turn inside out. And then this strip can then be sewn directly onto another much thicker, much harder piece of leather, soling leather, which is never going to have to bend. Yeah. So if you think about a pair of traditional leather shoes, you get this really solid sole at the bottom. And then you see a little piece of leather sort of stitched to it. And then you can see it sort of disappears inside and then out comes the upper. That is called a welted shoe. It was invented in the early Tudor era, and it means you can have a much more substantial, hard-wearing piece of footwear. We still wear them. Amazing. So this was obviously good for work outside and all that sort of thing. Exactly. Exactly. Fantastic. Thank you. And Laura would love to know if you can suggest something from Tudor times that has fallen out of use, either a method or an object or something that you think might be beneficial to reintroduce today. I think really the biggest thing, if, if it has to be like ordinary, everyday domestic practice, the biggest thing for me was giving up soap. Um, which isn't really quite the same. Uh, Tudor, Tudor laundry does not involve soap, or very rarely, just for a few little bits of cuff. It's normally done with taking it down the stream and beating it with big sticks, 
but you can soften and degrease it first by rinsing it in lye, which is a liquid that you, where you strained water through wood ash and it picks up the chemicals in the wood ash, which are highly alkali. And that of course dissolves the grease. So, so if you were going to do your laundry, you, you collect all your wood ash from your fire, shove it in a cloth or a basket or something, pour water through, you have a strainer at the bottom, maybe a really strong cloth, or sometimes you could make layers of sand and gravel to act as a filter. You just pour water through it and what you collect at the bottom will be, will look like a sort of weak black tea, sort of yellowy, browny liquid, which is very caustic, it's very alkaline. If you soak your greasy clothes in there, all the grease will dissolve. It will also sterilise them. Um, it's because because it's so alkali so it's brilliant for nappies that sort of thing and then once you've soaked them in that then you sort of just like take and then take the the soaked stuff down the stream and bash it with big sticks now having done that with the Tudor laundry many times I was amazed at how high quality the finish you know like how good a job it did and I thought well I don't want to be standing in streams as a modern (laughs) thing but if a washing machine surely is just this equivalent it's just bashing it in water isn't it if you don't put any soap in it, does it still work? Yeah, it does. <laughs> it's amazing. Ninety-nine percent of my washes I just run without any detergent whatsoever. What a good I don't put tip. anything in it. I don't. I don't even have to. You know, not even the eco whatnot. Nothing. nothing. Absolutely nothing. Oh just goodness. run your washing. If you've got something really greasy, you know, well, fine. Okay, maybe do the occasional wash with a little bit, or yeah. just soap it a little bit yeah. on the greasy bit, but. As your normal wash, just don't bother. That's just don't bother. I can't believe Save that. yourself a fortune. <laughs> Feel so true. As hell on the eco. <laughs> wow. Oh, my goodness. That is I such mean, a great basically, tip. Basically, you know, soap is okay. It's useful. But yeah. we've been oversold it. You know, we're constantly being told you have to use it all the time for everything. And it just turns out you don't. Wow. I'm going to try it. That's it. I'm not putting any detergent in tomorrow's washing. I'll let you know how it goes. So uh, Carol wants to know what's been your favorite era to recreate? Oh, it's always the Elizabethan. Uh, That is where my heart is. That is where my heart is. I've had to do all sorts of other things and they're interesting. And there's always, there's always something to be fascinated by, but my heart is Elizabethan. And uh, (laughs) if, if, so I suppose this connects to Alyssa's question. She wanted to know if you could live in another time period. So would it be, Elizabethan period if you no, live. Oh, I'm no. never living okay. anywhere in the past you don't I tell want you, to live it's anywhere. too flipping hard yeah it's well, much too just... hard too cold too hungry too yeah. dangerous too sick no thank you <laughs> no it, it's so true I know exactly I love modern life it's so comfortable it's so safe <laughs> so true much warmer um and yep last question from one of our listeners is mary i don't know if you know what off the top of your head ruth but she'd love to know your favorite tudor insult oh i do like the one i start my book with which is i'm sorry this is crude it's a turd in your teeth (laughs) and it's i mean it's not really an insult as such it's just sort of something really nasty you hurl at someone i love it for it's so direct it's just oh i'm keeping that one there's no flowery (laughs) messing about there is there it's the most disgusting image. <laughs> Let's all lock that one away for that special moment when we need something <laughs> extra special. Now, Ruth, do you have time? At the end of our Talking Tutors episodes, I normally we normally do what's called a little game of 10 to go. So this is just questions to get to know you a little bit better. Are you okay with doing that? Yeah, sure. So what was the last, <laughs> the last book that you read? Oh, gosh, I read so many. What was I reading I yesterday? Oh, it wasn't Tudor. It wasn't even history. No. What did I read? <laughs> that to me. I can't remember. 
remember titles. It was, oh, I know. It was about um, it's about the difference between Sunni and Shia Muslims. Yeah. Oh, okay. Great. Yeah, which was really interesting. Yeah. I didn't. I had no idea. I, you know, one the depths of one's ignorance is just amazing. So yes, it, I found it very interesting. When you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? Several things. I obviously <laughs> wanted to be a ballet dancer. Doesn't everybody really yeah. wanted to be a ballet dancer? I just wasn't good enough. I also quite fancy being a BBC Blue Peter presenter. I've come quite close to that. Well, <laughs> yeah, you've come very close, definitely. <laughs> so what What's your favourite holiday destination? Uh, Italy. Without, I love so Italy. So I just, I love the food. I love the landscape. I love the, the intellectual challenge of all those different civilizations piled one on top of another. And uh, as long as I don't have to live there and put up with the bureaucracy, I love Italian people too. I love their passion. You're very talented. You know how to do lots of things, but what's a new skill that you'd like to learn? Well, actually how to use a mobile phone would be really, really <laughs> handy. I still haven't got it. I've got some ancient thing and my husband has to set it all up for me and I'm just like totally incompetent. If I hear a ringing tone, I just assume it has nothing to do with me. I just assume it's something for somebody else's, somebody else's problem. I just, so I never answer the damn things. If I, if I, if I pick it up, I'm in like, I uh, can't remember. Well, how did I do it last time? Uh, what am I supposed to do? That would be really handy. Well, you have other strengths. Don't worry about the mobile phone. <laughs> <laughs> so what about um, your, a favorite thing about your career? You've had an incredible career. I've been very, very, very lucky. Not always very rich, but very, very <laughs> lucky. <laughs> I've enjoyed so much of it. It's really hard to pick out a highlight. Yeah, it is really hard to pick out a highlight. Perhaps, I, I think the most exciting possibly at the time was I worked for a while with the Globe Theatre in London and uh, for about 10 years on and off, just coming in and out as a consultant, um, my husband too. And we were working with the, the costume department, making clothes, uh, teaching, working with the props department. Um, we were also working with actors in rehearsal, particularly on movement and um, understanding a lot of the more obscure terms that are there. Um, so my husband was, you know, showing people how to how to sit with a sword and walk with a sword without it getting in their way and I was doing things like hat etiquette and manners and it was very varied and very exciting because although we were sort of history experts we knew nothing experts is pushing it a bit but you know what I mean history yeah, buffs yeah, yeah. they were you know we knew nothing about theatre absolutely nothing about that theatrical world and we were being taken into it pretty much at its summit and you know working with people at the height of their careers in doing really exciting stuff. It was just amazing. <laughs> that sounds so amazing. Much. Yeah. Now, Ruth, do you collect anything? You a collector? I try very hard not to. Right. I mean, I could it very hard because it could so easily get out of control. Yes. Um, and and one of the problems, of course, is that it, particularly if you're interested in early stuff, it needs proper looking after. Right. And yep. you know, you know, a home collection. Can you really do that? Are you doing it justice? So I really try not to collect anything. I could be desperately tempted by certain textiles. And, you know, sometimes you allow yourself a little bit. So I've got, I've got quite a lot of 1960s woven Welsh blankets, which I love. <laughs> and that I sounds lovely. Uses for them. <laughs> but I have to be, you know, we've got quite a, because we do a lot of Tudor reenactment, we've got a lot of, um, replica things of very high quality but they're deliberately replica and even if I could get a new thing a real thing which I couldn't you know I mean there's just so few of them surviving um, I wouldn't feel happy using 
um, but just because of the damage and the overall long-term preservation. So we've got loads of stuff, but it's replica. I really, 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 really try not to collect. It's hard. I yes, it like, must be <gasps> really hard. Okay, so you can travel back to one event in Tudor times. What would you like to see? Okay. A bit. You don't have to live there. You can An just event. go and observe. Just go and go as a quick little trip with quick little yeah, trip. Yeah, in the TARDIS, in, out. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't be very interested in any big political event. Uh, bore me rigid. I'd probably just turn up at the church fate or something somewhere. Because yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, what I'd good. want to be looking at was ordinary people. I'd, hats. I'd like to actually see some of these hats and veils in real. There's so few images of ordinary Tudors going about ordinary, their ordinary business that that, yeah, that would be... That would be really nice. I'd like to, you know, have a really close look at some ordinary people doing something simple. I'd pick a quiet moment as well, definitely. Yeah. And lucky last question, what has 2020 taught you, Ruth? Uh, I've quite liked being on my own in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) I sort of always guess. Heaven for introverts. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That's about it, really. Yeah, look. I love it. I love it. And uh, I swear this is the final thing and I will allow you to get on with your day. So do you have a suggestion? I always ask my guests for what I call a tutor takeaway. So it's something perhaps that our listeners can go and and have a look at after the episode. It could be a website that you recommend or a a film to watch or a book to read or anything at all, a song to listen to. Do you have a, a tutor takeaway for us? It wouldn't really be all that relevant, perhaps, to, to people in Australia. But there is a book I would recommend that isn't specifically Tudor history. Mm-hmm. Um, it is specifically British. Um, although I think some of, some, some of it would apply in other parts of the world, probably not Australia, but in other parts of the world. And that's a book that I read when I was in my early 20s, and that's co- called uh, The History of the British Countryside by Oliver Rackham. It's about trees and fields and lumps and bumps and uh, marshes and woods and what it is is saying you can read the countryside you can read if you walk if you know stuff you can walk around the British countryside you can read its history from the what you see if you take a walk down the street walk down the lane it's there for you you can see the way Tudor people use the landscape if you know the clues you're looking for and he lays it all out he's he's mixing together biology with archaeology, with written history, with ecology. And it's just fascinating. You know, he points out how to spot if you're in a wood that was planted 100 years ago or is in fact a piece of ancient wildwood that has somehow made it through the centuries. You can see how it was used in the medieval period. You can see how it was just by looking at the plants, by looking at the ground. I found it one of those books that really opened my eyes and changed the way I think about everything, but particularly the physical world around me. It t- t- helped to teach me to take notice, to really notice, not just walk on past and go, oh, yes, a field, you know, but to see what that field is saying, to notice the shape of it, to notice the ground, to notice what grows in it, just to take notice and to think about what I'm seeing. Even if you're not interested in history particularly, or even if you're not interested in the countryside particularly, that's what you come away with is this sort of new take notice. The world has got a lot to tell you. A lot to tell you, more than you thought, far more than you thought. It's just so bloody interesting. Oh, I love it. And I said I wasn't going to buy any more books this week, but oh well. <laughs> it's a classic, you know, it's been in print for a long time now. I'd also say it's a book that has changed the way ecology is dealt with right across the world. It's one of those deeply influential books that has changed government policies and informed conservation practices globally. Pretty good for history, yeah, isn't it? It sounds like a must read, definitely. 
Thank you so much. Ruth, thank you so much for your generosity you. and taking time to talk tutors with us. It's oh, been no, absolutely wonderful. It's been, it's been lovely. <laughs> Take care. Thank you so much. <laughs> Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.